The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is from Colossians 2, 6-15. Therefore, as you receive Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you are also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh." By the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Good morning. My name is Stacy Croft. If I haven't met you, uh, I'm the pastor here at Christ Rose Music Row. And from time to time, we love uh, meeting outside. We actually figured this out. Uh, we've been meeting here. This is like this month actually is our uh, seventh year of being a church which is pretty exciting. And uh, it's crazy that we didn't learn about thinking about having services outside until, of course, COVID hit, and then we started doing it. And man, we keep going back to it because we love it. It's beautiful. And uh, praise be to God that we get this kind of weather to do that. Um, I don't know about you, but uh, this weather also brings about a season for me that's not just uh, cold and leaves falling, but it smells like football. Uh, I love uh, and enjoy football. Don't know if you do, but I also enjoy kind of the history of it. Uh, you know, and um, I don't know if you follow or kind of what kind of sports you follow, if any, but the NFL is something I kind of grew up with and uh, always thought was really interesting, especially being from Texas and uh, following the ups and downs of a team called the Dallas Cowboys. But um, there's a trophy that's given at the end of uh, the season in the NFL. It's called the, the Lombardi Trophy. It's actually named after a very famous coach, Vince Lombardi. He was the coach of, uh, for the majority of his time, the Green Bay Packers. And in 1961, <clears throat> many, many, many moons ago, 1961, when the Packers were one of the greatest teams in the NFL, they went to the Super Bowl they played against the Philadelphia Eagles. They were set to win, and they lost in a heartbreaking fourth quarter when they were up, and then the Eagles came back and beat them. Well, uh, July of 1961 uh, comes around when training camp happens. That means all the players come back to uh, the facility to begin workouts, to begin doing, you know, preparing for the next season. They all come in, and they're all expecting, as it was, maybe a, a new uh, a way of doing the plays, picking up where they left off from the last game, uh, maybe a new scheme, a new offense, a new defense, something like that. They all pack into the room together, 
to hear what Coach Lombardi is going to say, and he holds up a football to them, and he says, men, this is a football. And uh, as a joke, one of the players says, slow down, Coach, you're going too fast. From that moment on, Vince Lombardi said, no, 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 this is not a joke. We're starting from where we began. This is a football. (laughs) This is what it looks like. And from that point on, they began going back to all the original fundamentals of blocking, tackling, what, where do your arms go? Where do your feet go? And they were kind of thinking, man, seriously? But from that moment on, not only did they win the next Super Bowl, 37 to zero against the New York Giants, they went on to win five out of the seven next championships after that. Vince Lombardi would win more than anyone else, and he would never lose another playoff in his coaching history. Pretty impressive. When Paul wrote the letter of Colossians, he wrote it in 62 AD. And by that time, the church in Colossae had, where it was situated, had a lot of things coming through it, be it industry, be it thought, philosophies, ideals. And one of the things that Paul is writing to them that they're really struggling with is, in the adversity they come again is, do you need a new scheme to really be in relationship with Jesus? Do you need something new to come on top of it in order to, to really know that you're, you're really walking as a Christian, to really know who you are? What does it really mean to follow him? And this passage, what we're looking at right now, is at the heart of the entire letter of Colossians. If you want to know kind of in a letter what Paul really wants them, you know, when, when somebody says, hey, if you leave with anything, leave with Paul is really writing to the Colossians to say, this is where it begins. He's holding up the gospel to say, this is the gospel. That's why he begins. He says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving, just as you were taught. Rooted, it's an agrarian word. Uh, Built up is an architectural term. He's saying, these are all the places where you began. This is the gospel. We're going back to that. You don't have to change anything. You don't have to add anything. Jesus doesn't need anything added to him. This is who you are in him. And so we're gonna look at the three things that he kind of takes out to say, hey, if you really wanna remember what the gospel is, let me remind you in these three ways. One, there's a fullness. What does it mean to be filled with the Lord Jesus? Two, what does it mean to be in relationship to him? Just simple. What does that mean? And then finally, what does it mean to be forgiven? What does it mean to be forgiven and live in a freedom of forgiveness? So a fullness, a relationship, and then forgiveness. And it begins this way. It begins, and we'll start actually in Verse eight, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells and you have been filled in him who is the head and rule of all authority. If there's one word that theologians say is the key word of the the letter of Colossians, it's the word fullness or full, or to be filled. 
In fact, if you go back to all the passages that we've looked at, including this one and all the ones that'll come after, that word is used over and over and over because it seems to be that Paul is wanting to get to the Colossians that their issue and what they really long for is to be full, is to feel full. And, it, and he begins by saying, no one takes you by captive philosophy. He doesn't just mean like a philosophy class. He's speaking to a specific kind of philosophy that was an issue in their day. In fact, some ancient uh, uh, historians, one named Josephus, who was around even during Jesus's time, says the philosophy was also some, in some ways connected to the, the ideals and understandings of the Pharisees and those of the religious rulers even around his time. But what it meant to be filled was that be taken captive by something that fills you up, that you feel full from. Uh, I've talked about this before, but I used to be a campus minister actually at uh, Vanderbilt University. And uh, I was there for 10 years. I loved it. And one of the things that we would finish our year with is um, we would finish with a senior night. And in that night, it was a night of just encouragements. And, and the seniors were able to speak to one another and also hear the underclassmen, the juniors, sophomores, and freshmen speak to them about what they meant to them. And every time without fail, what I loved about that evening is I just sat back and listened and watched. And they would walk out saying, I just feel so full. I'm just so full. And what did they mean? They were so full of the encouragement, full, filled with the joy that was not just some sort of like, oh, nice compliment, but filled with something that was, that was more permanent, more established, more powerful. We know this also in a negative sense, right? When you live throughout your day and you think and you realize, man, I'm really full of anxiety today. I was reading an article uh, in, uh, in, in a specific magazine, it was, as it often does, often brings up how much we're attached to our phones and those kind of things. But it was really bringing uniquely how in the moments, the spaces where uh, we find ourselves standing or sitting, waiting in a moment. So on an elevator, right, going up and down, just that awkward moment and someone else is in the elevator or not. And you just kind of like, what, do I just look at the numbers? Do I look up? Or, do I, or if you're in line for something, or you find yourself uh, seated at like a movie or somewhere waiting for things to get going. And what do you do? You pull out your phone because it fills that space in which oftentimes we may not want to sit and think. We used to be thoughtful about, hey, where's my mind go when that happens? <laughs> and it actually is an interesting question. When we, if we were to stop for a moment and not utilize our phones or something else to fill the space, what would it be full of? Would we find ourselves filled with uh, the anxiety of what we need to do? Would it be of, of uh, a conversation we just had that maybe was good or bad? Maybe we would think about more of what we need to do in our day or, or maybe haven't done? It really is a good question. We are filled. We do pursue those things. So what, what the, it's not too far a cry of what they were wanting to be full of to be pursued. Now, think about this. What he says to be captive by philosophy and empty deceit, something hollow, according to human tradition, according to elemental spirits of the world. So according to human tradition, things that seem to be pragmatic, things that seem to be, hey, we've always done this, so we should just keep doing it. <laughs> things that make us feel like, okay, that we're confident about things. 
or even an elemental spirits. And then he brings this component in. And the word for elemental spirits actually means an, uh, almost like a musical scale of notes, one right after another in succession. Or even the alphabet, A, you go from A to B to C. And what apparently was happening to the Colossians, they were thinking, man, we just need to have something that gives us steadiness. If I could just feel more full regularly with maybe this old tradition or maybe something like this elemental spirit of, of getting just connected again to things around me, maybe I'll feel closer to, to who I am with God. But again, for us, what is that thing? How do we seek to be filled? This is why Paul goes straight from that. He says, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him. Think about this for a second. He goes not just from what the things we seek to be filled with, but then who is the one where God dwells? Isn't that what we really want to reach? We want to reach something secure, something of home, of a confidence. In fact, that's actually what this means in Greek. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily actually means this, to settle down and to be at home. That's the literal translation, to settle down and be at home. Isn't that when we seek to be filled, when we seek the fullness thereof of something, we're wanting to feel that home. We're wanting to feel that security. And yet it is in Jesus, it is in him where the fullness of God dwells. And thus it says, if we are Jesus, if we are God's in Jesus, he dwells in us. You don't have to seek these other things. In other words, think of it practically. Instead of maybe picking up your phone and asking, what am, what's filling me from day to day? Is it anxiety or maybe it's a confidence? I got my day in order. I was able to check off my list. I feel full in those ways. How often do we look back to who we are in Jesus? That we have the fullness of God, the security of home, the security of his love in us and for us in him. That we don't have to seek outside of that. One of the greatest passages in the New Testament, I think, that speaks to this is in John uh, chapter 4. When Jesus encounters a woman at a well. And throughout the conversation when Jesus meets her in John chapter 4, we see her, our life being kind of unpacked before our eyes. Not only about her desire to go to a well to draw water, but her desire to actually have relationships in her life. Be it with men, be it with people in her city, and even in, the, in that conversation, be it with God himself. And yet what Jesus does is to speak to her and say, hey, if you come to me, I can bring you to a well that you won't have to go to over and over again, that you won't have to take a bucket to and draw from over and over, a well that will spring up within you to eternal life. And at first that sounds so weird. <laughs> what does that even mean? But if you think about the fullness of what Paul is unpacking here, we know exactly what it means. It means there's a resource of who we have in our relationship with the Lord that we can go to him and not have to solve our anxiety on our own. Not have to go to other wells or cisterns or places to seek the refreshment 
that he can give us in the depths. And that's where he goes even next. He says, to the question, and here it is, and this is what it brings, and actually what it brings out in that woman at the well, what is my relationship to Jesus then? What does it really mean? If that's a fullness, then what does it really mean for me to be in relationship with Jesus? How close of a relationship to him do I have to have to experience this? And that's a really good question. Most of the time when we ask that question, we ask it from one direction. We ask it from our direction and we will maybe answer it, well, I need to read my Bible more. (laughs) Maybe I need to in the new year, uh, you know, make more trips to church. Maybe I need to be more involved in my small group. We, We have those answers one directionally where we say, how close is my relationship to Jesus? Well, I feel this. But Paul doesn't go that way. Notice what Paul does in verse 11 is he says, in him also you were circumcised. In him, he says again, having been buried with him in baptism, in verse 12, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul uses language in these prepositions over and over that you may hear like Christians use sometimes. He says, oh, you're in Jesus. What does it mean to be in Jesus? They're not throwaway terms. It actually is speaking to what is the true relationship we have to Jesus. Yesterday and today, I guess, are really big days. And we just had a conversation about it. I went to the Vandy Ole Miss game and it was Definitely a great first half of football, um, if you're a Vandy fan. Now, I know I have a lot of Ole Miss fans here that are like, it was a great second half of football. But you know, when we talk about it, it's really interesting because people ask before the game starts, they come up and they say things like, man, who are y'all playing this week? Like, well, we're playing Ole Miss. How'd the game go? How'd you do yesterday? Man, we lost. And I talk about we lost in this way. We use this language every day of the week. Today, uh, my Cowboys and the Titans, I'm a Titans and a Cowboys fan. You can be both, by the way. And I um, talk about them and people are always saying, hey, who are your boys playing this week? I say, my boys. They're like, my boys. Well, they know what I'm talking about, but think about the language. We use it all the time. Did I play in the Vandy game yesterday? Uh, No, it may have looked like it, but no. Now, those of you that are Ole Miss fans, and I did not wear this just for Ole Miss. This was really subconscious, the red, the blue. I know that you're kind of like, okay. But it is amazing that we use this language. Yes, my team, my boy, we, you know, we use this united language to a team that we, I didn't put on a uniform. In fact, I didn't even go to Vanderbilt. (laughs) I worked there. But what am I doing? I'm I'm putting this language of identification so that whatever happens on that field, I identify with as mine. And we do it over and over. And we don't just do it in sports. We do it in, in a number of things. We do it with our friends. We do it with our children. We use this language of identification that causes us to show that we're united with something. That's exactly what Paul is doing. What he's saying to you is that what? In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Verse 12, and been buried with him in baptism. You were also raised with him. It's not that the direction of 
hey, how's your relationship with Jesus? And often that we go, the question is, what is his relationship to you? How does he speak of you? And he speaks of you and I in such a relationship and so identifies with us that we're not just somebody who, hey, we just kind of follow along. See, we typically talk about our relationship to Jesus as Christianity. Christianity is our response to Jesus. I just talked about this in the formation hour this morning. There's a difference, and oftentimes we have a relationship with our Christianity instead of Jesus. And what I mean by that is Christianity is our response to Jesus, but our relationship, Christianity is our response to Jesus. And I think that's where so much of the Colossians are tripping up, and oftentimes we do too. As we feel this dryness, this, man, how how do I feel closer to, to God? Or what do I need to do? And we want to try on this new thing, or maybe try it from this direction. And all we need to do is go back to what? This is the gospel. And the gospel is not about your one directional relationship and how good you can get it towards Jesus. It's to go back to how is God's relationship to you and to me? It's in him. And he uses two things here to talk about that. He talks about the circumcision without hands and he talks buried and raised. He says, this sign and seal, circumcision, which is from the Old Testament, that cutting away is what it is. And what it means, though, but without hands, and what he's getting at here is that it's not just some sort of mark that you and I can do by putting off the body of flesh, but by the circumcision of Christ. You know what he's getting at that's really interesting? He's saying there's a circumcision that you and I can't reach. He's hearkening back to a circumcision of the heart. And if you think about that, you and I can't reach the depths of our heart in the way that we think we can. I mean, how do you do that? Otherwise, circumcision becomes simply behavioral change. We're here, we have the marks of a Christian, we we do all the things of a Christian, but are we in relationship to Jesus? What he's saying is the hands are not our hands that can get to the cutting away that need to happen. The cutting of our hearts the places that you and I don't even want him to know and are afraid of him knowing. And yet that's where he reaches. See, the flesh, and when it talks about the flesh, isn't like one decision or a choice. It's a whole worldview. It's God coming in in Christ and saying, if you want to really know what it means to be in relationship with me, It's not about all the signs that you can take on. It's the sign of what I've done within you. It's the places of you that you can't reach by just simply going to this or that or trying on a new scheme or formation with with being in relationship. I am in relationship to you. I've come to the deepest places of you that you can't even touch. And maybe you're scared of. Or maybe in even a moment of confession, you think, gosh, I got to confess that? And not even that, but it goes on even to say, but having been buried with him in baptism, and you were also raised with him, that in Jesus's death, he so takes us with him and then breaks forth from the grave 
that what it means is that his death and burial are actually, his death, burial, and resurrection are actually applied to you. So that when, instead of us saying, hey, how are you a Christian? Well, I got this, I do this, I did. It's like, it's more of God saying, Jesus, how have you loved them? I've carried them with me through death itself. That I, am, that I am with them and they are mine. And that his life now is his. So much so that it drives even further than that to say, this is his united relationship to us, but that we can live in freedom. Because he finishes with this in verse 13. And you who were dead in trespasses and circumcision of your flesh, uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside. How? Nailing it to the cross. If you want to know that this new life, that death has actually been addressed, that you actually were up with Jesus when he bursts forth from the grave, it is this passage that you are forgiven. You're actually forgiven. When it talks about trespasses, forgiveness, debt, it all connects to that understanding. I was sitting, I was in the car the other day and I never listened to the radio. I don't, nobody does anymore. But it was just on before my car kicked in Bluetooth or whatever, you know, something else came on. And I heard a story on some radio, I don't even know which radio station it was. It just said, hey, Today, here's the worst person story. And can you imagine being this person on this end? Like, We're going to tell you a story about the worst person today. We're like, oh. And it was a story about um, this, uh, I, I don't know if it was a, a server at a restaurant or a coffee shop, but the person left this, this server a $3,000 tip. Three, this is not a joke, $3,000. The server was so elated and, and thought, man, I'm able to pay all these bills. I'm able to take care of things I wasn't able to take care of. Well, just come to find out within that same week, the, the person who left the tip had a change of heart and like re reversed the charges of the $3,000 tip. And they're like, how mean do you have to be? to give a person $3,000 on a tip and then to take it back. But think about this for a second. The debt that he knew, this is the deal. The debt he understood. It was terrible because all of us would want to do that. First of all, I don't know if any of us would put $3,000 down. But second, what did he experience? He experienced the crucial weight of the debt. You see what it's saying here in this passage is that forgiveness doesn't mean that everything just goes away. See, canceling the record of a debt and its legal demands, why it says that here, it means there's a washing out. There was a certificate of indebtedness that was used in Judaism. And it means there's a document recording the debts. And here's the thing about it. Receiving forgiveness for those debts means you have to know someone's debt really well. It means that the debt just doesn't go away. 
but the, the lender actually feels the weight of the debt itself. I mean, as horrible as that story is, oh, that person was starting to feel it. The lender was feeling it. There's a cost. In fact, what's happening here is that debt is something that's not just out there. It's to be known. To be, and, and think about this. In, in any level, to be known by, by your debt or in your debt is such an uncomfortable position. It could be a, a, a debt of, uh, that you owe someone relationally, emotionally, intellectually. We encounter that all the time, but it, it's not that when forgiveness comes that the debt just magically disappears. Forgiveness is not a forgetting here. And forgiveness is not an excuse or an avoidance. Forgiveness in this passage, when it talks about it, is that the forgiveness is all the cost of the debt goes on to the lender. In other words, God made alive together with him, with us, by canceling the record of debt, he set aside, and how did he do it? He nailed it to the cross. This is the gospel. The good news is good, not just because the debt that you have of what you owe God and everyone else, the debt you see in your life that you know is there, that you cannot deal with, isn't that just it's melted away, but that it's actually placed somewhere specifically, relationally, holy, nailed to the cross. One of my favorite classes in seminary was Hebrew. I know that sounds so nerdy, but I loved it. And I had a professor who knew nine different languages. His name was Elliot Green. He was about this tall. He knew nine. He was so intelligent. He would walk to the board and he would start speaking to us. And then for some reason, because he knew so many languages, his brain would shift and he would start writing in a different language on the board. He knew like Aramaic, Arabic, German, like he would start writing German. And we're like, no, 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 no. We don't know what you're putting up there. You're like, oh, sorry. We're like, come on, dude. You got to be kidding me. First day of Hebrew, first week rather, end of the week, first quiz comes up. He said, I want everyone to write on their paper in perfect Hebrew, what is the word for grace? What is the word for grace? At the end of this, that's just the only, that's your quiz. Everybody's sitting there looking around like, okay, I've heard it. I know how it sounds. I don't know if I know how to write it. God, it's weird. You have to write from right to left. And it's way different. This is not like a normal language. What am I doing? He gets, he gives, he lets us struggle for, you know, five, 10 minutes. He says, whatever's on your paper, mark it out right now and put a 100 at it. And then he writes on the board, the word hesed, which is the word kindness or grace in, in Hebrew. He says, copy this word for word on your paper. Every single one of you gets 100 today. And then he proceeded to give us this sermonette of grace and we're all in Hebrew crying. Yes, Hebrew crying. Because this is the gospel. I knew what my grade was. I knew what my debt was. Don't we live in that posture every day? What is the grade for me today? Do I go to bed with a good one or a bad one? That is exactly what Paul is trying to mine out for us. 
and there's no new technique you need to bring in. There's nothing else you need to go to bring into that courtroom. You don't need another witness in the courtroom to of the appeals of the end of your day to tell you that you're forgiven. It has been nailed to the cross. The good news of the gospel is that the tangible forgiveness that's yours is literally nailed to the cross. The taste that we get at a table like this is not a normal thing. It's actually one that's pretty wild and abnormal if you think about it. That when we come to this table, you're literally tasting your canceled debt. That's why we say that we don't want you to come to this table and take of this table unless you have professed Jesus and you're a part of the church because you don't want to just do something and profess it when you still live in your debt thinking, I can handle this, I got it. This is the gospel. The good news is that your relationship to Jesus, and you want to know it goes all the way back to fullness, doesn't it? Isn't this how we leave with the fullness? We don't leave with a fullness that's merely emotional. We leave with one that's completely relational in the fact that we have a God who has addressed our very sin and that you get to taste your forgiveness. You get to taste the fact that he has not only addressed it in just some sort of language, but he's actually addressed it in the flesh of his son so that you know forgiveness is yours. The debt is paid and there is a cost. But who takes on the cost? It's God. He is willing to step into your debt, wherever it is today, whatever is that debt that you continue to go back to and think, I've got to pay this down before I come to this table. That is not what this table is. There's nothing you can pay down in order to receive this. It's all by grace. This is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Amen? Amen? Amen. Amen. Praise be to God.